Coming up this hour, we're talking Carl Lentz, How Do We Wait Well? And then we're joined by author Don Everts, who wrote the book, The Hopeful Neighborhood, What Happens When Christians Pursue the Common Good. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. So glad you're here. I feel like I'm saying that a lot more lately, but I feel like a real sense of gratitude bubbling up. There's a billion things you could be doing or worrying about or consuming, but the fact that you're joining us for any length of time is uh, is really meaningful to us. Brian, before we dive into some of the news, some heartbreaking news, we'll talk a little politics, yeah. we're going to talk finances a little bit later in the show. How are, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, I, I do love the weather we've got going on. I'm doing well. I uh, w- Looking at the news, man, I'm kind of bummed by like uh, not surprised, but how while we're still counting votes and trying to figure it out, it feels like it's just getting more and more angry, more and more protests, and you're like, I don't know how this is gonna end. Uh, so, so I, I do get kind of bummed when watching the news, but then I go and I sit on the back deck in November, and I'm like, okay, I shouldn't be able to be outside in the middle of no- in early November in Chicago. So uh, that brings me back. I'm doing well. How about you today? How are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Today? Hold, hold it on to the little things, man. I think that's exactly. probably that's probably worthwhile. Also, just by way of reminder for this week, uh, Brian and I are recording the show a little bit earlier in the day. So if things happen between the time of our recording and when it airs on the radio, uh, that's our disclaimer and our PSA. Please forgive us if that's in any way confusing. A couple of things I want to talk about at the top of the hour here. First is um, some discouraging church news we'll get to in a second. There's an article out of The Atlantic. The headline kind of caught my attention. Face the bitter truth. The subheading is we are two countries and neither of them is going to be conquered or disappear anytime soon. If we have time, that article is just fantastic. And then not surprising, Missy O'Day uh, just wrote a a wonderful article. um, A nation waits the source of our hope. I want to kind of end with that prayer because a lot of us are just feeling this this limbo space right now. But I'd love to start. I would love to start. I think we have to start. I'm discouraged that we're starting with the news of Carl Lentz, pastor of Hillsong East Coast, um, Justin Bieber's pastor, as many are uh, familiar, terminated for, quote, moral failures. What's what's going on with this story? Yeah, I texted this to you last night with just an emoji of, of a hand over my head, and, and you were just like, oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, so Carl Lentz, well-known pastor. If you, see, if you don't know him by name, but go check out the article, I'm guessing you'll recognize him and his picture because he's kind of known to be the pastor to celebrities and this huge cutting edge church of Hillsong in New York city. Uh, that's a very trendy church. And uh, you know, he he's interviewed all the time and, and you're always a little uh, like, ah, I hope this is good. Right? right. And the article came out last night that just kind of pulled the um, uh, pulled the curtain back a little bit, said leadership issues, breaches of trust, recent revelation of moral failures. And then on Twitter last night, I probably shouldn't have, but I was clicking on replies and other people who've been in the church saying, we've known this for a long time and, mm. and nobody ever wanted to do and people covered it up. And it's just, we're, we're, we feel like a broken record here, but we have to do it because part of our, our role, I think, is just to be honest and be like, here's who what we want the church to be, Big C Church, uh, and say, you know, it's yet again this case of celebrity pastor uh, not everything as it appears, It this is what it at least seems like is happening down here. Uh, and eventually the big church 
making a change, but most people go, well, that was two years, three years too late. I'm sure it's not the end of the story. It just makes me sad because not only because he has a high profile uh, and this is yet another black eye on, again, the church for people who aren't a part of the church, but also, uh, you know, he's got a, a strong ministry in a place that needs strong churches. And it's another black eye for the church. So it, it, again, of sounding like a broken record, but these stories just make me sad and angry. Uh, every time we come up against them, and it seems like we come up against them more and more. And, and just a reminder to be praying for the church, for mm-hmm. the people affected. Like it's easy, I think, maybe not easy. It's almost instinctual at this point to see headlines just as headlines, especially if you know if you're not affected by this directly or you don't live in the city. Sometimes it's easy to say like, oh, wow, another church out there somewhere. But we need to remember this, you know. This has lasting ripple effects uh, in more ways than one. So at the very least, yeah, I would echo what you said. It's heartbreaking. It's angering, to be honest. And maybe yeah, maybe we'll unpack a little bit more as to why later in the week. Um, but it, yeah, it grieves us. And I would encourage you to, to be praying for this church and the community. Um, we're going to end with this prayer from Missy O'Day. But real briefly, would you, would you get us into this article from The Atlantic? Because I think there's some really interesting insights here the the facing the bitter truth you know i was i was chatting with some people yesterday about this that at the very least regardless of where you land on all of this um i think a lot of people are realizing maybe for the first time or or with a new level of depth just how divided we are and i think people anecdotally have thought that or felt that but now even you know in the last couple of days has really shown like wow we are it almost feels like two countries at times and this, this doesn't just magically go away um, you know, once a decision is reached. What, what's going on with this article? Yeah. I, I think the powerful part of this article is, is the very end. So let me just read the last paragraph. He says, uh, this is George Packer at The Atlantic. He says, there's no escaping who we Americans have become. This is the election's meaning. We are stuck with one another, seeing no way out and no apparent way through, sinking deeper into a state of mutual incomprehension and loathing. The possible exits Gradual de-escalation, majority breakthrough, clean separation, civil war are either unlikely or unthinkable. We have to live and govern ourselves together, but we still don't know how. Winning in this state becomes a chimera. Whoever takes the presidency, all Americans will remain the losers. And and I think that mm-hmm. wraps it up well, man. I think we look at what's going on in con- presently. Yeah, as we still don't even know who the election is, my wife and I were talking about it. It's amazing how many states are literally split 50-50 or close to it, you know, 50.5 and 49. It's just amazing. And and we have to figure out a way as a country. And I would say for the sake of our show, what we talk about, we got to figure out a way as a church uh, to live with these not just different politics, but completely it feels like different ways of of viewing the country and humanity. And and it's not getting better. It's getting worse. We've got to figure out a way to kind of turn this ship around. And I worry yeah. that uh, that that may not be possible. I I think that it is possible. I I would again echo um, Dr. Cornell West. I'm I'm hopeful but not optimistic. I think that probably mm-hmm. describes a lot of the space that many of us occupy right now. I want to end with this uh, article from Derek Vreeland over at Missio Day. And uh, again, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, Brian. I just think, not, no. yeah, he's he's just a, a wonderful writer and uh, and thinker and educator. A nation waits, the source of our hope. Let me just read it. He yeah, says, Election Day has come and gone, and we still don't know who's going to be the next president. Perhaps, like me, 
You're ready to say goodbye to the political advertising, which dominates our collective imagination from video ads on YouTube to the neighbor's yard littered with signs. Election Day in America has become the ugly Super Bowl of our angry, divided, antagonistic team sport approach to electing political candidates. I lament what the American political landscape has become. Aristotle warned us in the fourth century that democracy can give way to the rise of demagogues who appeal to the desire of large groups of people while rejecting reason, virtue, and concern for the common good. As followers of Jesus, we vote according to our spirit-enlivened consciousness. That is, unless a particular Christian's conscience doesn't allow him or her to vote. Stanley Harwas reminds us that voting is a coercive act. After all, if we choose to vote, we do so without putting much hope into it. Love cannot be rightly ordered unless the proper goal of our hope is established, writes Thomas Aquinas in his Shorter Summa. Our hope is not in the governments of humankind, but in the kingdom of God. If our hope rests in the hands of politicos, then our love for God and neighbor will become decentered in our life of faith and political engagement. So we render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and we render unto God what is God's, as Jesus taught us. Caesar may get our vote, but God gets our heart. Caesar gets our votes in this particular election, but God gets our affection. Caesar may win an election, but we choose not to be swept into the rejoicing or despair of this political season. We rejoice in God and allow our faith in Jesus to define who we are and who the Spirit is shaping us to be as the people of God. And I, I just thought that was so pointed and so well-written and so needed. And like always, all three of these articles are on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. What are you reading that's bringing you some clarity or some peace? That would be a great opportunity for all of us to kind of resource share with one another in some pretty tumultuous times. Coming up next, though, author Don Everts, who wrote the new book, The Hopeful Neighborhood, What Happens When Christians Pursue the Common Good?, coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We're so glad that you're here and we're thrilled to have for not one but two segments, none other than Don Everett's. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, good to be with you, Ian and Brian. Hey, we're, it's going to be obvious, I think, in a moment why we're so excited to have you on the show. But would you just take a, a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, absolutely. So I am a nomad. I, I've lived all across the United States. I've lived in 30 different neighborhoods in my life. I did campus ministry uh, for 14 years with InterVarsity. And then I have been an ordained Presbyterian pastor uh, doing pastor work for 12 years. Uh, and then recently have switched. So I, I work kind of full time as a writer and researcher with Lutheran Hour Ministries right now. So mm. a Presbyterian pastor working with the Lutherans. <laughs> There's some joke somewhere in there. Exactly. That's, that's who I am. We were waiting for it. <laughs> and Don, your book, uh, The Hopeful Neighborhood, we love the subtitle, What Happens When Christians Pursue the Common Good. Uh, that's what we, we would like people to pursue the common good here on the show. <laughs> that's uh, right. You asked the question, are you tired of hearing people dismiss the church as an irrelevant relic? How is it that that question kind of drives everything that you're writing in this book? You know, it, it it comes down to some of the shifts we've experienced in the last few decades, right? Uh, whether you call it the shift from modernity to postmodernity, wh whatever it is, uh, things have changed in our culture. Uh, in, in, in such a way that, you know, as Christians, we feel like the visiting team now, right? For, for a while in our country, it felt like we were the home team, uh, at least nominally, it's a Christian nation. And, you know, some of that has shifted. Uh, 
Uh, and what do we do with that, right? I mean, part, part of what happens is, is the church as it has existed starts to feel irrelevant uh, when people are just huddled together and, and, and doing their Christian thing. And, I, and I, I think people in our culture can wonder, does the church really matter anymore? Right. And I think sometimes Christians, uh, we start to wonder the same thing. You know, are, am, are, am I just going to my meeting here or, or does the gospel, does being the people of God change stuff? Hmm. Does, does, it, does it help us uh, be a part of bringing in the kingdom of God, of making a difference in this world, of being used by God to, to make a difference? And, and so I think that, that kind of existential, like, what are we here for as the church? What are we here for as Christians? I think we're asking maybe in bigger ways— uh, because Christianity isn't as sexy as it used to be, right? It isn't mm-hmm. as assumed as it used to be. And so we're at, we're, we're kind of looking in the mirror and wondering what it's all supposed to be about. See, one of the things that I appreciate about this book, because I feel like what I hear a lot of other pastors talk about is the relevant or irrelevance of the church. But you, you talk about another word, and you use the word credibility. How do we restore credibility mm-hmm. to the church, which I think is a, it's a, it's a different aim. It's less about, yeah. oh, how can we be more center stage like we used to and more like, wow, we've actually in some ways lost credibility in, in, in the public eye. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, it, it, credibility matters. Trust matters, right? right. <laughs> like, uh, at Lutheran Hour Ministries, where I work, we're all about bringing Christ to the nations, right? So we're all about evangelism. We have been for 104 years. Well, the problem is, uh, if, you know, if, if you have a message you want to get to people and they don't trust you, right? They're not they're not going to hear, and so the credibility of the church, which has been hurt, right? And and whether this is because of famous scandals, whether this is because a lot of people today carry around carry around some kind of church hurt, you know, they mm-hmm. they've been hurt, or a dear friend has been hurt by a Christian or the church or whatever, and all of those little slights. Uh, all of those scandals get imputed to the church writ large, mm-hmm. and there, there's a we're in a context of distrust. The gospel wants to be shared in the warm light of friendship and mm-hmm. trust, and so our credibility issues are an issue. F- I mean, if we care about the gospel and people hearing the gospel and hearing the saving message of Jesus, we got to deal with the fact that you know, we. We have a bad reputation and people don't mm. trust us and they're not interested and in, they look at our behavior and they're like, why would I want to hear the words coming out of your mouth Yeah, mm. uh, based on what we're seeing? Yeah. Right. Don, a question we've received just from the title of our show here. How would you, uh, in your book, define even that phrase, the common good? What do you mean when you're using that? Yeah, so, so we're talking about like the well-being or flourishing of of the communal life of a given place. So kind of pursuing the well-being of all the people, the creatures, the land in the circle around you. Mm-hmm. So so I mean you could it, it, in biblical terms you could think of shalom, right? That that kind of rich uh, Hebrew sense of not just peace like lack of conflict, but like life is as it was intended to be. Mm. Uh, and and we're loving our neighbors, and we're at peace with the environment. We're caring for creation, right? That that if you think of the creation mandate, uh, God created humans, and He said, "Okay, care for this little plot where I where I set you down. Care for the creatures, the people, the land, all of it." That mandate to pursue shalom or the common good didn't go away when we got kicked out <laughs> when we got kicked mm-hmm. out of the garden. Right for two thousand years, it's been 
it's been a keystone of the Christian faith. And yet, as you guys know, I'm sure uh, in your podcast, for a lot of Christians today, it's not even a category that they think about. Right. Yes. I want to drill down a little further on that because I think that that initial definition you gave, the vast majority of Christians listening would say, yeah, I'm I'm for all those things. What what is different from that aim, that pursuit than maybe what you've seen in the Western church in the last five or six decades? Yeah, I mean, there's so there's a really good emphasis on I'll put it in a positive way. Okay. Uh, there, there's a, a wonderful emphasis on evangelism, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and on on our the call that God puts on his people to share the good news and to bring it to other people. Mm-hmm. But we're called to share the gospel in word and deed. And, and we've tended to major on the word part and the deed part, which the church has understood you know, for, for centuries was that God calls us to, to pursue the welfare of the city, to use mm. a term that God used with the exiles uh, in Babylon, uh, that, that even when the church or the people of God feel like a visiting team, even when they're exiles, that God's call to them is don't curl up, don't, cur- don't, don't, don't circle the wagons, mm. care for the city around you. Think of Peter's letter, right? He's writing to the church in Asia Minor and they're taking it on the chin and they're tempted to like, you know, just curl in on themselves. And Peter writes to them the same thing Jeremiah wrote to the exiles. He says, no one can hurt you for doing good, for pursuing peace. And so do good. Mm-hmm. So it's this, it's this beautiful, one of the early church historians described the early church as having eloquent behavior. Their way of behaving was a message uh, that made attracted people to the gospel. Uh, and we're excited you're going to join us. But for one more definition before we move on to the next segment, sure. uh, how do you find define neighborhood? You're speaking of being a blessing yep. to your neighborhood. How would you define neighborhood for people? Yeah, we you know we we develop it. We we define it in a very practical way. It's where you lay your head at night, and and mm-hmm. kind of. A certain radius around that, and that radius varies quite a bit, right? Depending if you live in a rural place or in an urban city. So it could be a city block where you live, it could be a subdivision where you live, it could be a rural community, but it's it's where you live and the people and the place that you rub shoulders with mm. during your everyday life. We're joined by Don Everts, who wrote the new book, The Hopeful Neighborhood: What Happens When Christians Pursue the Common Good. Which, just to say the obvious, we love that title. I just think that <laughs> is such a necessary book. <laughs> we accept it wholeheartedly. One of the questions Brian was asking in the last segment was, how do you define common good and how do you define neighborhood? Which, if you're just joining us, by the way, go back and listen to the podcast. But I, I would love to know, one of the things you mentioned about neighborhood is, you know, the, the places and people we rub shoulders with. But like right now in a pandemic, rubbing shoulders is is quite a faux pas. How, how do you think about neighborhood and neighbors and communities in a, in a pandemic reality? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. So it kind of cuts both ways because on the one hand, you're right. Uh, being face to face maskless, right. feels like this like quaint thing from, you know, from our history now. Uh, and, and, and so it, it, it can seem harder on the other hand, on the other hand, most Americans are spending more time in their neighborhoods now than they did previously because they're not commuting to work. They're not commuting to the places, to their schools necessarily. My wife and I have gone on more walks through our neighborhood mm-hmm. in the last seven months 
than in the last the seven years combined prior to that. <laughs> and so it, it is kind of a combination. So the beautiful thing is this is like a, a beautiful opportunity for us to reacquaint ourselves with our neighborhoods. M many of us are doing, uh, th the phrase is living above place. And what that means is like we, we generally live our lives without any meaningful connection to the people or place in our neighborhood that, that mm. live right around. Um, well, that's changed. Uh, and it's it's an opportunity. So yes, we have to be creative. Uh, we've talked with neighbors, you know, you know, just across the lawn. Uh, we've had people come and we open our front window and we we sh they're on the porch. We're in our living room and we're sharing through <laughs> through through the screen through mm. the screened window. So yes, you have to be creative. Uh, you know, little fires and fire pits are great because it's it makes sense to be at a distance and you're outside and so it's safe. But it's a really ripe opportunity because a lot of us are kind of almost sequestered uh, near these people that maybe we've lived near for a long time, mm. but we don't necessarily know them. That's good. Huh. Yeah, Don, in your book, you talk about constructive, practical ways that churches and Christians, you say, can bless those in your neighborhood and around us. What are some of those constructive, practical ways that people can grab onto? Yeah, so, I mean, so for most people, we found the start is get reacquainted with your neighborhood. So uh, uh, meet your neighbors. If if you're not even acquaintances, become acquaintances. If, if all you are is you wave and smile at each other, actually relate actually get to know each other in a deeper way. So uh, if you already relate some, like deepen your friendship. So that's that's a kind of path that a lot of people can take. Uh, another one then is to is to find out what are the gifts that are already there in the neighborhood. This is the whole process. We're launching this whole Hopeful Neighborhood project and this, hmm. this, this nationwide network of people who are wanting to pursue the common good in their neighborhood, but don't know how to do it, <laughs> right? Right. right? And so and so, what we recommend is you always start with what are the gifts that God has already put in the neighborhood that, that individuals have, whether Christian or not, that are in the environment, the associations, the businesses around you. So we've developed, for example, a, a neighborhood gift inventory, which is, is, is a set of lenses you can put on to kind of relearn what are the gifts, what are the assets that God has already placed in the neighborhood. Once you know those gifts, boy, you know, cool possibilities really present themselves. And so one of the things we recommend is, you know, uh, take, take that, do that inventory yourself. Hmm. Uh, go to a neighbor. This is one of the things we're finding real traction with. Go to your neighbor and say, hey, you've lived here longer than I have. I'm trying to like learn all the gifts that are here in our neighborhood. Would you help me do that? And and so you're together discovering the gifts of the neighborhood. We've also developed a whole every gift inventory, which is for individuals. What are the gifts we have? And I'm mm. not talking about spiritual gifts. I'm talking about, you know, you're good at plumbing. You're good at tutoring. You know, you speak Spanish, whatever it is. And so we've created this, uh, this online research-backed way for people to get in touch with their own gifts. So that's uh, – and, and you can take it. You can share it with your neighbors. So getting to know your neighbors. And then getting to know the gifts that are around there, fabulous, hmm. hopeful places to start that can lead to all kinds of fun, crazy stuff. I love that. One of the things I used to tell uh, our church is that if, if you've ever if you've ever left your house, you've been on a mission trip. Like the idea of <laughs> That's good. That's good. seeing your neighborhood, yeah. seeing, you know, often we like we feel like we need to hop on a plane and go somewhere else yeah. to do ministry somewhere else. Or maybe yeah. people will say, oh, I need to quit my job and go into ministry. And I'm like, no, your job, it, it is it is your ministry. But yeah. I remember reading yeah. a book years ago about 
the migration in America from the the front stoop to the back patio where, you know, yes. half a century yeah. ago, we used to all sit in the front and like connect with each other. And we slowly migrated to the back, put up huge fences and yeah. we all kind of became like siloed. What, what do you think are some of the other challenges to living out what you're proposing? Because I'm hearing you talk about it and I like, I'm amped. I like. I want to go run through a brick wall. Yeah, I'm like, yes, that's what yeah. we need more of. What am I missing? Like, what are the what are some of the hurdles or obstacles to this? Yeah. So uh, what you mentioned, that's a real barrier, right? And so kind of the way our neighborhoods are built. So I mean, we could we could talk a lot about urban planning and all that, but let's not go down that route. Mm-hmm. There there are some particular barriers that Christians have. So let's because we can do something about those. What right. one of those barriers is this feeling that. Everything that I do, we do as Christians and Christians together, or it's my church doing it as a mission, et cetera. Here's the reality. Uh, Our nationwide research revealed that uh, churches and Christian organizations have a really bad reputation. Hmm. And so when we asked people, just non-Christians in the culture, who is best suited to help make a difference right in your neighborhood? They told us that they trust the government community members, charities, and businesses more than they trust churches and Christian organizations to to make a difference in the community. That's sobering. That's really sobering. That's a barrier. And, but here, here's the good news. People trust community members. If you live in your neighborhood, which you do (laughs) by definition, (laughs) people trust you because you're a neighbor. And so one of the barriers, I think, is we have this muscle memory, like I gather with a bunch of Christians from my church. We go to a random place we've never been before and we'll never go to again. Actually, the hopeful thing right now is to say, where do I live and why don't I do this with my non-Christian neighbors? Mm -hmm. Because they are interested in in pursuing the common good as well. And so to to stand shoulder to shoulder with non-Christians. All, the, the book I've written is for Christians, but the whole website and the online process and inventories and everything, they're written for Christians or non-Christians. And that. so to go to your neighbors and say, hey, I was thinking, because we're hanging out in our neighborhood more, wh- what if we made a difference in our neighborhood together? You want to do that with me? I tell you what, non-Christians want to do that as well. It's part of their creation mandate yeah. as well. Not only does that build bridges and help you make a difference in the neighborhood, but it it's eloquent behavior and it, it provides potential open doors to have spiritual conversations. So I think that's one of the barriers is we tend to, to cloister ourselves as Christians. Mm, that's mm. good. Don, we're so grateful for how much time you've given to us today. Uh, where can people find not just the book, but other things you've written, social media, put everything out there if people want to read more of what you're talking about? Sure. Yeah. So uh, the, the hopefulneighborhood.org uh, is a place people can find out about this book. We're, we have a field guide coming out in March, a complete online process, all free for people to pursue the common good. So, you know, start there. Uh, at Lutheran Hour Ministries, we're researching a new topic every year with the Barna Group. We've talked about spiritual conversations, households of faith. So if people go to lhm.org for Lutheran Hour Ministries, lhm.org, they can find out about our research and the other books and tools, you know, mo- a lot of it really free. Uh, so that, that'd be the great place to start. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. Our guest today has been Don Everts, the author of the new book, The Hopeful Neighborhood, What Happens When Christians Pursue the Common Good. And just to sneak it in there, you also wrote a book a couple of decades ago called Jesus with Dirty Feet that uh, was immensely formative for me. Just to say it out loud, Don, thank you for that book as yeah. well. That has been a wonderful resource for me over the years. And we so appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show today. Hey, Ian and Brian, it's so fun to talk to you guys. Thank the feeling you. is mutual, man. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. So glad that you are here, wherever here may be for you. That would be a fun survey. Like, where do you, I feel like a year ago, commuting was when I listened to most of my podcasts. Commuting and while running. And yes. commutes aren't really happening. And as the weather turns, I'm running way less. I'd be really curious to know, when are people consuming the show? How Are you listening live via the radio? Are you listening later with the podcast at four times the speed just to get through it? Like, what is the, that'd be interesting. Where do you tend to listen to podcasts? Uh, doing yard work or mm. also doing the dishes actually. But, uh, but I also used to listen to podcasts uh, on the commute that you and I both had to make to get up to the studio, but we haven't been doing that since COVID. And so I have lost one of the outlets to where I listen to a lot of podcasts. So I tend to only listen right now. Like yesterday, I raked for a while outside and listened to a whole podcast. So that's really my only spot. Also, because I'm not doing much working out these days. So. <laughs> but Okay, so when, I mean, does like shoveling snow count? Will you listen to podcasts yes. as you're shoveling yeah. snow? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow, so. look at you. I don't utilize any of that time. I, I, I tend to do it mostly in silence like a psychopath. That's... <laughs> I'm, That's weird. <laughs> I'm realizing how weird that is because it's hard for me to run without a podcast or music yeah. or something. But when it comes to like yard work or dishes, I've never listened to anything while doing the dishes. I, yeah. you inspired uh, me, Brian. A hundred percent of the time when I'm doing yard work, mowing the lawn, uh, shoveling snow, I'm listening to a podcast. So maybe that what we've learned here is you should do that during yard work and I'll start working out and we'll listen to more podcasts. Well, there you, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this doesn't have anything to do with anything necessarily. I saw this article it's from the guardian. So it's not you know necessarily written from like a Christian perspective, but it's an article about Dave Ramsey. I don't think we've ever actually done like a full article or a full segment on Dave Ramsey, mostly because we just haven't had reason to, but, you know, if you've existed in the church sphere for any length of time, you at the very least have probably heard the name. Dave Ramsey is almost a household name when it comes to Christians and finance. And I, over the years, I've heard whispers of very opposing viewpoints. You know, some side is like, oh, Ramsey and his particular philosophy, like, saved my finances, saved my marriage. Mm -hmm. And then I've heard mm -hmm. other people like, you know what? I don't like his style. He seems like a bully or it's too simplistic or it's too – so, like – I've been anecdotally sort of interested in some of that. And then lo and behold, I find this uh, article over the guardian, the man who wants to help you out of debt at any cost. It goes on to say millions turned to financial guru and radio host Dave Ramsey for his tough love. Many say he saved their lives. Critics say he ignores the structural reasons. So many are in debt and poverty. What is going on here? Yeah, some of the background, it says Dave Ramsey, America's most influential personal finance guru, drives a pickup truck that he says will eat your electric car. He wears a 45 on his hip with a hollow point in the chamber. He is an older white male, a self-described capitalist pig and an evangelical Christian who almost always votes conservative. He hates government intervention in his life and in yours. His mortal enemy, however, is personal debt, and he has spent the last three decades on a crusade against modern usury in the form of credit card companies, payday lenders, and debt collectors. Uh, Ramsey believes that as long as you have one red cent of debt, a credit card debt, student loans, car payments, mortgages, medical bills, you can never be free. The day you take scissors to your credit cards is the beginning of your financial salvation. Three hours a day, five times a week, 16 million people tune into the Dave Ramsey Show, Ramsey's decades-long 
uh, running radio program for his financial counsel. Listen to this. It's the third biggest talk radio program in the country. Wow. After only Rush Limbaugh and the common. No, and Sean Hannity. (laughs) (laughs) Unsurprisingly, his following includes a growing number of debt burden Millennial. So we'll stop there for a sec. That's his background. He's also been described real fast as the financial whisperer to Trump's America. So I think one problem people have with him, depending on your politics, is he is very conservative in his politics. And so we know that that clouds things for people. But uh, Ramsey, like you said, has a very specific way of viewing money, right? No debt and uh, the cash, the envelope system, work from cash. He's been bankrupt. Now he's very wealthy. Uh, I use his uh, I use his um, his app uh, called Every Dollar for our budgeting. And mm-hmm. it's great. Um, but there are a lot of people, like you said, for various reasons uh, who think that he's missing major portions of, of what causes people to go into debt and not speaking to that. Uh, but he certainly has a following man in churches. And now it's interesting that it's it's grown from like the kind of a niche in the church Christian world that he's now even in this non-Christian article is described as the country's financial guru, yep. not the church's, the country's right. financial guru. Well, let, let me read some of the stats, too, because uh, I'm a sucker for data. He says Americans currently owe more than 14 trillion in consumer debt. Wow. Uh, of that, 372 billion is at least 90 days late and considered seriously delinquent. The average American owes $6,194 in credit card debt, and Americans owe a collective $1.6 trillion in student loans. Any of those numbers surprise you, Brian, or is that? I No, except when you just get the shock of seeing the word trillion. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, so they, right. they're more shocking. They don't surprise me, but they're, they're kind of more shocking just to see it on, uh, on paper there. So he's got a couple of uh, on Twitter. He dispenses tough love commands. Here's some of the, the ones that the uh, the author liked or chose to use. I don't think yeah. I'd say like uh, if you're working on paying off debt, the only time you should see the inside of a restaurant is if you're working there. Uh, if you <laughs> if you come to work late and they're paying you, then you're stealing. Don't steal and expect to get promoted, um, which I, I'm sure, you know. We've probably even preached things like that. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't know how often you teach on money, but the the whole the whole point of the article, which I think is an interesting take, and you know we don't have a lot of time left, but like, is it possible for someone like Ramsey to have advice that is potentially helpful for one demographic, but not necessarily helpful for another? Do, like, do you see that? as conceivable and like where to like we partner with Christians against poverty and the work that they do right here in Chicagoland, by the way, is, is wonderful. And, and not something that I've heard a whole lot of other companies really tackle is like, how do we like come alongside people uh, in, in their debt and educate them, you know, kind of shoulder to shoulder. But like, do you think that's possible that his advice could be really, really helpful for one demographic, but maybe not helpful or like the author proposes like ignores some other systemic elements when it comes to, other communities? I think that's fair. I do. I think uh, it's it's tough with anything, including money, to say that there's a one size fits all. And uh, I do think it's also partly Ramsey's personality uh, that rubs some people the wrong way. The tough love that you talked about there. He's very uh, he that's part of his shtick. Like that's part right. of his thing. But but like there's a quote in here where somebody asked him, aren't, uh, you know, minimum wage stagnant. And he said, you know, he answered them. The only thing that's stagnant are people basically implying if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, anybody 
uh, can, you know, make more money and improve themselves, which is true often, but is not 100% true all of the time. There are other situations that play into things. And so I, as a whole, find Ramsey to be helpful, but I do think that there's probably certain situations, certain demographics for which Ramsey uh, is speaking a completely different language and where he probably doesn't understand where they're coming from as well. And so uh, I, and I also get, there's some shtick to Ramsey. Like if you listen to him, it's yeah. like, I'm, there's almost like a Dr. Phil feel. And I don't say that just cause he looks like, him. <laughs> mm. uh, there's a little bit of a Dr. Phil feel like I'm going to tell you the hard truth of, of what no one else is willing to tell you. And again, it's not always the person's fault on the other end of the phone as to why they are where they are. So I think you're right. I think there's a, uh, it's probably not a hundred percent good for every demographic and every type of person. Well, and I think, you know, part of what it's getting at, it's going to, and again, this is a much longer article than we have time to unpack now, but it's going to talk about um, the credit card industry, the uh, educational debt, things like that. Some of the, some of the more systemic things, which is a conversation that I think is worth, is worth having. Maybe, maybe we should get another financial guru. Maybe let's get Dave Ramsey on the show. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, That'd be wonderful. John, let's make that happen. Let's, <laughs> let's see if we can get him to big <laughs> right, and unpack a bit of what's, cause I do like some of what he says. One of his mantras is, you know, like a willingness to be weird, you know, to, mm-hmm. to make your coworkers wonder why you make more money, but drive a worse car or your friends wonder why you rarely go out to dinner with them. You know, like that mm-hmm. willingness is probably a, a big piece for some of us but we can't ignore some of the bigger like systemic issues that, you know, a lot of other people face. So uh, with that, our first hour is in the books. If you missed our interview with uh, Don Everts earlier in the show, I cannot encourage you enough to go back and listen to the podcast. In the second hour, I want to talk a little bit about healing and writing and the relationship between the two. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about COVID. We're going to talk about Borat and maybe a little minimalism. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. So good to have you today. I just think this nice weather is putting me in a better mood. You know, I used to do these evening walks with my boys, and uh, the weather's been nice enough this week to do that. The only difference is it's like pitch black by 10 to 5. So I took him out yesterday and I was like, a lot of parts of our walk are kind of spooky at night. Like it was kind of a, it's kind of a nature trail. So like no, no lights, no buildings. And I'm like, they, I was proud of them. They had a blast, but the whole time I'm like, is this going to freak them out? We're like heading into the haunted forest here. That doesn't seem like, let's go. I'm with you. Like, uh, the getting darker early, even what happens every year, you just get thrown by it. I, last night I was sitting on the couch and it was pitch black. And I was like, oh, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, let's watch some TV. The night's probably the kids are going to go to bed soon. The night's almost over. And I looked up and it was 645. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I was like, oh, which, never mind. <laughs> which I feel like this is like such a suburban dad observation. It's like this every year, Brian. Every year. Every, every year, year we're like, oh, my gosh, can't believe how early it gets dark. We make the but same. It's the same comments every year. And my son was getting, he was legitimately angry last night when it was dark. He's like, are you kidding me? It's like, I'm like, bud, every year, man, I know, but I can't believe how dark it is. There's got to be like a medical term for that. Like some kind of 
like psychological, like here's why we get outraged by the first snowfall every year, even though we live in the Midwest. Either way, (laughs) if there's a word for that, let us know. Uh, I want to tackle a couple of things, and these aren't going to be strung together with any sort of like thematic prowess at all. But we we haven't talked COVID at all yet. Do you want to give us sort of like a brief flyover of how we're doing specifically here in Illinois? It is wild because COVID still is, you know, still out there. Uh, but when something like the election happens, uh, you, it just kind of you you stop thinking about it a little bit. Or when other things happen, you just kind of stop thinking about it. But Illinois uh, Region 2 just be, went under stricter um, uh, protocols. And that was the last of the 11 regions. So the whole state is basically back under stricter protocols because our numbers mm-hmm. are heading in the wrong direction. I was telling you. Uh, off air, just kind of anecdotally, my daughter's uh, high school uh, just went for they just declared two weeks of remote learning. So they've been going on a hybrid model, but now they've stopped. And but my kids elementary school is still going hybrid. And so you're trying to juggle these schedules. Uh, But, you know, cases are still going up and everybody can disagree and have opinions. I have my own opinions about what we should and shouldn't be doing right now. But uh, but it's undoubted that that case, the COVID's still here and it's uh, not going away. It's, in fact, getting a bit worse. We're about to head into the winter. Uh, I believe I read yesterday nationwide we had our most number of COVID deaths, I think, to date in for a single day mm-hmm. uh, or at least in a long time. And so we got to keep up our vigilance, right? Wash your hands, uh, wear a mask, those kinds of things. Uh, but it's also weird because you're just kind of used to it. Now, I don't know if you feel that way, but. Uh, obviously, neither you nor I are sick, so that would change things. But but you you're just kind of used to it now. So when they're like, oh, you know, uh, this is going on now, you're like, OK, whatever. Oh, uh, sure. And then some people are taking extreme measures. I talked to somebody yesterday who's got a whose son is on a basketball team and every weekend they're playing in Indiana <laughs> to kind of circumvent wow. what's going on. And so everybody's dealing with it differently. But I did just want to make sure to remind us it's still out there. You know, it didn't go away with the election like some conspiracy theorists thought it would uh, and other things. And so we have to continue being mindful of that. Yeah, it is interesting how it is a bit of a roller coaster with regards to my awareness or interaction. You know, like yeah. if if I spend five consecutive days in my basement, which is sort of what this week is shaping up to be, then it is easier for it to kind of be in the back of your mind. But if I, you know, like we, I have to go to uh, the yellow box to film when we, you know, when we're teaching. So there's like a heightened sense of like, oh yeah, I can mask up and we're sanitizing everything. And there's, you know, sometimes those things are are a bit of a a reminder, like, oh yeah, this is definitely still a thing that we're dealing with. Um, I said earlier, there wasn't necessarily like a thematic flow, but there, there is sort of, um, two other articles I want to try and sneak into one segment here. One is from uh, Relevant, and it simply is a call. It says, you're a Christian. Start acting like it online. Um, <laughs> that's maybe a little snarkier than some people want, but it's it's a good article about how we conduct ourselves online. I had a friend that used to talk about Christians treat online like it's Vegas, like what happens here stays here. Oh, that's um, funny. And I thought that's that was an interesting observation. Like, yeah. That's not true. Like who you are online matters. And the other article uh, says how to heal through writing. So this, they're both connected to the idea of writing, and I think in an interesting way because I feel like some some of the toxicity that we see online is due to like some grief or trauma or pain that hasn't been dealt with, and we're seeing that like come out in the comment section. You know, have you ever seen someone like respond to someone else in a way they're like, "Whoa, gosh, what is going on in their yeah. life?" I do think they're connected a little bit. So let's let's start with the uh, the relevant article. You want to give us some of the highlights there? 
Yeah, it just begins by talking about how crazy the online world is that you are talking about. And uh, they said, of course, there's nothing wrong with feeling passionate about what you believe or even getting angry when you see wrong being done. But as Christians, we're called to a different way of engaging with people, even ones we disagree with. And if we look at the Bible, we'll see that it's some pretty clear things to say about this. And so that the headings here that this author uh, of this article is going to challenge us with what it means to start acting Christian online uh, the first one is love your enemies, right? This is very basic to who we are as believers, but what's it mean to love your enemies on Facebook, on Twitter, yeah, right. uh, your online enemy? You know, you you hate what they have said. Maybe you don't, you don't even consider them your enemy. So love your enemies, live at peace with everyone. I think we got to wrestle with that one. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. I'd hate to tell you some of you are like, I don't believe in that. That's in the Bible. <laughs> Be quick to listen. <laughs> and slow to speak. And so those are the three that this article gets at. And I think it's worth uh, wrestling with. We as Christians, our Christian witness uh, doesn't go away when we log on to Facebook or Twitter. And so what's it look like to act like a Christian when we're on Facebook, when we're on Twitter, Instagram, whatever else it might be? I like how this article ends. It says these tense political times offer many opportunities to sink down to a really nasty level of discourse, which many of us have seen they also offer us as Christians an incredible opportunity to swing to the opposite side of the spectrum, to speak with humility, to show grace, and to demonstrate that no matter how different we may be, God's love is available to everyone. That may feel a little Christianity 101 to some of us, but I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I just need that reminder. Like to that, you know, quick to listen, slow to speak thing. I've seen three or four instances of this in the last couple of months where like a public figure with a big audience uh, outright just quoted a Bible verse and didn't cite the source and the comment oh, section no for way. people about how they're a communist now, or you're just a woke liberal. I'm like, that is from <laughs> Galatians. It's from, <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, just I want to try that now. <laughs> pause for a second. It's, it's amazing how many, and they're different verses. It's not like one verse floating around. I've seen multiple Christian leaders in sort of the public sphere uh, make some kind, literally just just the quote without the citation. And maybe they were trying to stir something like maybe they were trying to prove a point, which maybe that's another lesson for us. Like is antagonism. Is it the right time to be a provocateur? You know what I mean? Like I yeah. I probably can be guilty of this sometimes, you know, stirring the pot. I feel like sometimes stirring the pot can be helpful. Sometimes I think we need that. Um, but I've also been really convicted. Like, is now the time for that, man? Like, do we yeah, do we yeah, need extra pot stirrers? And uh, <laughs> is that what we're short on in our culture right now? <laughs> uh, real, real deficient in the pot stirring department. Thank, thank you. Ian. We need what more true revolutionary. We need more snark and cynicism. That's what we need. <laughs> well, and not surprisingly, I was overly optimistic in this segment. There's another article, and I mentioned it before the break. How to heal through life writing. I'll just mention it because it's on the Facebook page and. Uh, it actually provides sort of, I think, some helpful steps for how to process some of what we're seeing and feeling and thinking right now. I've told you before, Brian, I'm both simultaneously a big believer in processing through writing and terrible at it. Like, I'm just not a good journaler. I'm not I'm not consistent, but I, I found this article to be helpful and it provides some helpful tips, which I think may correspond to hopefully lowering some level of toxicity uh, online. So either way. All of that's up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think over there. Coming up next, I want to talk a little minimalism. And this headline kind of cuts to the chase. It says, your stuff is only taking up space. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I, I typically mention it, but I want to really emphasize the, uh, the interview that we did in the first hour with Don Everts is so good. The book is called The Hopeful Neighborhood, What Happens When Christians Pursue the Common Good. We don't just like that title for obvious reasons, but I think right. yeah, the work that he's doing and the organization and the data and the research, I don't know. Big, big fan of Don and the work that he does. Highly recommend. Go listen to the interview. Get the book. Check out the resources. There's a like a free sample chapter online and all that. Definitely recommend that. Also, I haven't done um, holidays yet. Do you want to play our old game where you guess what yes. holiday it is? Does that ever pan out well? It never pans out. I guess s'more. I guess National S'mores Day because it's got to be one of these days. But uh, oh man, that time I hope you're right. right now. That's true. Uh, it's not. It's definitely Let me not. Guess. It's it's uh it's national. Uh, it's national mm, <laughs> Panini Day. It's, it's it's National Panini Day today. It's not, but I have a feeling you might like this one. It's National Donut Day. Is it really? Uh huh. I yeah. got to figure out because in the past on National Donut Day, Dunkin' Donuts has given out free donuts, and I've I've taken my kids, so I'm gonna have to look that up. Oh, all right. It's also. Hope you're all listening. National Men Make Dinner Day. I will make donuts. <laughs> you're going to make donuts? All right. Show, yeah, document that and show us on Facebook. Uh, National Love Your Red Hair Day. So that's a thing. Okay. It's also Guy Fox Day in New Zealand and United Kingdom. It's Thanksgiving in Liberia. It's Colon Day in Panama. Tough day for mm. Panama. <laughs> <laughs> It's Return Day, Delaware, in Delaware. Do you know that? No. What's no. Return Day? Uh, people who left Delaware come on back. <laughs> oh, oh, I was thinking like returning gifts, like I <laughs> like keep your gift receipt day in Delaware. Anyway, those are uh, so, just some of the wonderful, noteworthy holidays of today. Interestingly, um, Dunkin' Donuts claims National Donut Day to be June the fifth. I'm just looking this up right now, so there whoa. seems to be some dispute. Dunkin' Donuts stepped in and said, "That's not the, that's not our day. We're going June fifth. So whatever." Wow. I well, okay. Oh. So this, I just the Google says June fourth. Actually, oh, interesting. Ah, oh, we gotta get to the bottom of this. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. Let's forget the article we were going to talk about. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna sit here in silence on air as we Google. <laughs> we're when gonna is get free donuts donut today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you're uh, if you're new to the show. Um, every once in a while, Brian and I like to just veer away from really anything that has anything to do with like what's making headlines, what's current, because sometimes that can just be overwhelming and you probably already know it, right? Like how we consume media now is so different than it was even just 15 years ago. Like it's just constant in your face. And now is certainly that kind of time. I don't know if uh, you ever moseyed on over to becoming minimalist. Their stuff is actually pretty solid and they you know they have a bunch of resources and books and there's a course you can take and there's a documentary but every once in a while stuff stuff pops up that i think is really interesting and i think one of these guys has had some relationship with christianity i don't know exactly to what degree but this article simply says your stuff is only taking up space and i thought you know in a in a quarantine yeah. People might be more aware of that than ever before. You know, like if you're used to sort of like leaving your house all day or whatever, there's probably a renewed sense of like, oh, we got a bunch of stuff here that doesn't actually matter. So I thought this would maybe timely, appropriate in that way. It yeah. starts by saying there's an old joke about treadmills. It goes something like this. One time I bought a treadmill. Now it's the most expensive clothes <laughs> hanger in my home. <laughs> People laugh. They know it's true. 
The fact is we often buy items with good intentions but never end up using them. Of course, in the scenario above, if the treadmill was only serving as an extra clothes hanger in the corner of our bedroom, that would be one thing. But the reality is that unused item is more than a hanger. It's taking up space, lots of it. It's taking up valuable physical space in your home. It's another physical object in your home that you need to dust and clean and vacuum around. It's just another thing to walk around every day or pack up when you move. But more than physical space, it also takes up mental space in your mind. As Randy Alcorn says, every increased possession adds increased anxiety onto our lives. And that is definitely true. The, uh, that unused item, a treadmill or anything, is visual clutter in your home. It calls for your attention every time you walk into the room. It surfaces guilt that you wasted money on it. It causes regret every time you see it. And it serves as a constant reminder that at some point you had to decide what to do with it. Our unused items are not passive. They are active. They take up space, physical space in our home and mental space in our mind, which leads me back to the old adage about treadmills. One time I bought a treadmill. Now it's the most expensive clothes hanger in my home. There's a lot of truth in that statement, maybe more than we realize. If a treadmill is not being used as a treadmill, what is it exactly? If it's not being used for exercise, is it even a piece of exercise equipment? Maybe it really is just an expensive clothes hanger in the corner of my room. This question quickly extends far beyond exercise equipment. We could begin to ask the same of other items in our home that are not being used. Uh, I'll pause there and ask a probing question. Brian, do you have any items like this in your home? I used to have a treadmill till we got rid of it, but uh, oh, okay, it is um yeah, absolutely. And, and what's hard is uh like when we lived in Wheaton, we lived in a really small house that made us like we had yeah. no storage space. We had to do stuff, and we don't live in a big house now, but we live in a house that's just big enough, <laughs> to, and it's got a yeah. crawl space that you're like, I haven't used that in five years, six years. So no, a hundred percent that there are. <laughs> It is it is in the plural. Do we have things? Not a thing. Do we have things where you're like, we could get rid of that and never recognize that we got rid of that for one second into the future ever again. And so, yeah, this is a big deal. I would love because when you got the clutter, you, you just never it's hard to like have peace in your house. Right. It's hard uh-huh. to like just enjoy. It always feels like something's not right. And so, yeah, uh, had the treadmill. and We got it for free. Never really used it and then gave it away for free. Uh, but yeah, there's certainly other things that play this role for us. I really wish you had told me like, got it for free, sold it for 500 bucks. Uh, <laughs> nope. Um, nope. But it isn't just those big items. Like he goes on to say, if a shirt is in my closet and it's never being worn, what is it? It's actually, is it actually a piece of clothing or is it just a piece of fabric hanging in my closet? The coffee mugs in the back of my cabinet hasn't been used to serve a drink for as long as I can remember. Is it really a coffee mug anymore? If there are countless tools in my garage that never get used, are they really tools anymore? If that plastic spatula is never used, what does it become? If a book has never been read, is it really a book? I mean, isn't it the purpose of a book to provide education or entertainment? Mm-hmm. Clearly, it isn't doing that. If that old desktop computer is never used, what is it? It's like this person is outlining the actual items in my house. It's, like it's in my certainly, not, right, <laughs> certainly not something I use to solve problems or accomplish tasks. If I never listened to those CDs, if we never used that camping gear, if those old phones are just sitting in a box, if I don't know what these chords go to, if I never play that piano, if I... Uh, if that person ever gets used, it seems to me the items in our homes should serve a purpose. They should be used for the reason we purchased them. If they are not, they are no longer serving their purpose. They're only taking up space or being used as a really expensive clothes hanger. I don't have any sort of like big takeaway. I just found that <laughs> wildly wow. convicting, actually. And the idea of physical space and mental space having some kind of correlation, somebody might be listening thinking, 
nah, I don't buy that hippy dippy nonsense. But I think there's something to that, though. I feel that when you walk into like a cluttered room and you're like, ah, oh, what is why do we have all of this? I don't do you feel the same way when you walk into clutter? Is it not is it not like trigger you as much? 100%. 100%. Really? And then what we'll do in our house is like have a mass purge, but then everything just kind of builds up again and builds up as yeah. opposed to doing How that. How does that happen? Right. Yeah, I feel this, man. I totally feel what you're talking about here. Well, either way, I don't, again, I have no like action step, no revelation. It just, it convicted me. And I know that a lot of us are spending a lot more time in our homes. And I'm not saying you got a Marie Kondo the whole place, but uh, it's articles like this that are good, like subtle prompts for me. Like, okay, I probably should be paying a little more attention to that in particular because it is probably affecting me. At, eight, at maybe even a subconscious level in ways that I'm not aware of, which then, and this is what I do care about, if that's stressing me out, I'm not giving my best to my wife. I'm not giving my mm-hmm. best to my kids. I'm not giving my best to my work. And that's when it really becomes a threat. I'm like, okay, that's something worth going after. So either way, that's up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We would love to know what you think. Uh, I am so excited to have this conversation on this show because I don't think we ever have. Let's talk a little Borat. Hmm? What do you think of that? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> let's let's see how much trouble we can get in here coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. It is very nice. Uh, my name is Ian Simkins <laughs> along with Brian Fromm. Did you know enough to at least know what that reference was? Yes. Yes. I know okay. that's Borat. I was telling you all fair. I've never <laughs> seen the movie, but I, I do know the uh, the cultural reference there for sure. I did. I did do that voice. Uh, I, I made it. I called an audible. I didn't plan to do that, and I'm regretting it already because one, I don't think it was a good impression. Two, obvious reasons. Anyway, uh, it's something that I've heard a lot of people tweeting and writing about. You know, everyone's been talking about this uh, this new Borat movie, which is, I mean, add that to the pile of bizarre things in 2020. Like, who could have anticipated? I mean, other than the people that were actually working on the film. Oh yeah, we're probably also going to get another. Uh, Borat movie, which I, I find <laughs> bizarrely interesting. But what I've also seen, and again, because of the movie, I've you know seen other clips of Sasha Baron Cohen in interviews where he's actually himself, and he's he's intelligent, like he's he's yes. well read. Yep. He's um he's he seems like a like an interesting cat. I'll I'll be really honest. I I have not seen the new one, and I didn't see the old one. So oh okay, I thought yeah. I was gonna be the only one. Okay. <laughs> No, this is I've not I've not seen any of it. I've read a couple of tweets and articles and perspectives on the new film, which is part of what I want to talk about, because I think it's it's interesting for uh, a few reasons, not the least of which. Like, do you remember when Dave Chappelle kind of reentered the comedy game and people were really split because obviously a, a bunch of people were just amped that he was back and a bunch of other people were like, it's like he's been like locked in a time capsule because some of the jokes he's making now don't fly anymore. They, they worked 15 years ago. We're a different country. It's a different world now. And that's some of what people are writing about Borat too. Some, some are saying like this one headline from culture uh, says uh, fascinating and urgently satirical. That's from the BBC. Like urgently satirical is such an interesting phrase to me. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious to get into that, but then from CNN politics, uh, reassessing the racial stereotyping in Borat, which is in some ways saying like, ah, that kind of comedy was more widely received when the first one came out, but things things have shifted. So I don't know if you want to, do you want to pick one of the two and we'll kind of drill down a little bit? I just think there's a fascinating line here in the BBC article 
that kind of gets at what you're saying, how our culture has changed. Because the article goes, nowadays, you can watch countless Borat-style routines at the click of a mouse. A related point is that in the first film, Sasha Baron Cohen amazed us by getting Americans to make the most outrageously toxic statements on camera. These days, in contrast, some Americans make these statements on camera every day. They don't need anyone to coax or trick them into expressing opinions that might have been classed as extreme 14 years ago. They do so loudly and proudly. When I read that, because I, you said you haven't watched them. I haven't seen any of the movies, but we get the whole shtick about the Borat movies, right? Like he got people, the, the whole, in the new one, You what you've probably seen is the Rudy Giuliani clip going around. Uh-huh. That's from the Borat films. Uh, but this idea that what made uh, Borat so kind of uh, jarring in 2006 was what he was able to get people to say to do. And that's just the world we live in right now with Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, uh, people being extreme and crazy. I When I read that, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's only we're only talking 14, 15 years ago. Uh-huh. And to say that what was so outside the norm 15 years ago is kind of commonplace now mm. uh, is a pretty big indictment on our on our culture and probably an indictment on the effects of social media as well. Well, and the CNN article is going to go on to talk about um, some of the people from the country that Borat is depicting or pretending to be from uh, have not found the stereotyping to be funny. Like they've, you know, one uh, quote says it felt like a punch in the gut. And to to me, I think. Like I'm trying to think of like a, a widely recognized depiction of Americans by somebody else. Can you think of can you think of something in the public eye that everyone would know? Like, oh, that was a pretty insulting take on what it means to be an American. <laughs> I can't mainly because we're usually making the movies. <laughs> like <laughs> at least the ones I'm watching. No, I can't actually. But yeah, the where's he from in these Kazakhstan? I think, and that was yes, a big thing right. about the first one. How upset they were uh, by it, and so now to bring it back. Uh, is a little bit surprising because, yeah, there was a huge blow uh, blow up back in 2006 over the way he depicted people from that uh, that part of the world, for sure. I remember when Ricky Gervais was really coming on the scene. I feel like a lot of Americans, particularly Christian Americans, because he was like pretty outspoken about his atheism. Uh, there was a pretty high level of offense from he wasn't like doing characters necessarily, but certainly some of what he was saying in his his stand up and his performances did not uh, did not speak highly of Americans or American culture, but I th- I think it's an interesting. So like when the BBC article talks about like um, what's the phrase they use, it's urgently satirical. Can you can you think of other hmm. other vehicles or avenues or spaces where satire is like urgently needed? Like taking into account everything that's happening in the world, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about how I've often felt that comedians might be the closest version we have to modern day prophets for a number of reasons. Um, But do you think that there's value like social value to satire, not even just satire like this, because, you know, plenty, plenty will assess. And I think rightly so that Borat is, is quite crude. Satire doesn't have to be crude. I think satire can be a really interesting way to pull back the curtain on things that are happening. But like, do you think satire has, social value and does that depend on like what a certain culture is going through at the time, like a pandemic or a national election? Uh, Like I think about our own culture. I I would answer that question this way. I think satire is needed now as much as ever, but Mm. here's the problem. 
I think that uh, there's something that's happened in our culture where uh, where we take ourselves so seriously and everyone is insulted by everything that I think satire wouldn't serve the purpose right now of going, oh, yeah, I am being kind of ridiculous. That was a that you know, I, I need to look in the mirror. I think instead people just get more inflamed, right? If they're satirical about Trump and Trump supporters. It's not going to cause people to go, yeah, that's, that really makes me think, or vice versa if it was Biden and his supporters. Uh, so, yeah, I wish that I believe that we were in a culture that could handle satire well and where it could uh, spur us to, like, actually look in the mirror and go, yeah, good one. Yeah, you got me on that one. Uh, I, I do. It, we are being ridiculous because I just don't think that's how we live. I think right now people take themselves so seriously and get so angry uh, and so personally insulted by everything that I'm not sure it would land well. So I'd answer that as like a, yes, I wish that it was, uh, <laughs> I think it's more needed, but I don't think it would work well. Well, that's interesting. And I know that you're not quite saying this, but this has often been, you know, certainly one camp of the political spectrum has referred to the other camp as snowflakes, right? That's mm-hmm. not quite what you're saying, right? But you could see how it's, that answer is related to it, right? Like, oh, uh, buck up, t- toughen up. Like, right. is that, is that what you're saying? Uh, I think in the realm of comedy, I do feel that way a little bit. Like sometimes, uh, I, so I don't like that whole phrase snowflake because I don't think you need to tell me what I can and can't get insulted by <laughs> and tell me how I should react. But with that right. said, uh, I do think we just, as in general, and it's often the people who call other people snowflakes are just as guilty. Yeah, right. uh, we take ourselves so seriously and get so worked up when you say anything about uh, anything that I, you know, might define me, my politics, even my faith in some level. I, you know, people can can poke stuff about the church right now that should cause us to go, Ugh, that's uh, that's that's a good point that that's how people see right. us or whatever. Right. So uh, I do get it. it's usually the people on the right tossing the snowflake towards people on the left. But I think some of my most conservative Trump following friends are the most sensitive people I know mm. uh, in this sense. And so I do think uh, when it comes to, co- we have to be able to not just laugh at ourselves, but have things that cause us to reassess, uh, oh, you know, am I acting that way? Am I taking myself right. too seriously? Whatever. And on both sides of the aisle. Well, sure. I remember too, I think we've talked about the movie saved before there. I have, for whatever reason, I've always like really, uh, not really, but I have certainly been intrigued by Christian satire. So the movie saved, you know, that was Mandy Moore, Macaulay Culkin was like really poking fun, particularly at like Christian right. schools. And I remember, like being interested by it and wanting to watch it with other people. Like, Hey, what could we learn? Like we're pastors, we're Christians. Like what would be some things that we could take from this and realizing how offended so many of my Christian friends were by it. And I was like, yeah, but this is what a non-Christian world thinks of us. Like, this is like a, this is an opportunity, a peek behind the curtain of like what they really think about us either way. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if Borat is quite that for us, but I thought two (laughs) interesting takes on something that a lot of people, at least we're talking about a week ago. It feels like old news now, but I wanted to I wanted to tackle that a little bit because I thought it was interesting. And uh, we're going to end with this article. The headline simply reads, The Difference Between Christian Institutions and the Kingdom. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, and we are in the home stretch. You, where did that phrase come from? Do you know? Oh, I have. I'm guessing that that comes from horse racing, right? The end of a horse race, they come down the home stretch. So why do they call it that, though? Because they are. It's that last stretch where they're going home. <laughs> <laughs> do you? I mean, 
Yeah, look, I'm looking at it right now on uh, on the Google machine. Looks like it's got a, a bunch of different potential origins. Some have to do with prison. Some have to do with politics. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> Again, let's just spend the whole segment Googling in silence on the radio and see if people notice. Um, somebody yesterday, by the way, told me that Instagram Messenger is the main mode they communicate with people. No way. That's their main, more than texting wow. or email or Facebook. Instagram Messenger is like the thing they use most often, and I haven't felt that old in a while. I was like, I, exactly. wait, there's a messenger? I mean, I mean, I, know. I was going to say my first thought was there's an Instagram <laughs> messenger. <laughs> I at least do that much, but it's, a, it's a, a good reminder to me at least, you know, we have these platforms. Whatever one is, you know, easiest for you, I guess we don't have an email address. Maybe one day we'll uh, we'll earn one of those, but you, you can get a hold of us, and uh, we would love to hear from you if you have ideas or thoughts about previous shows or future shows. That's all fair game. And as always, we're podcasted. It's so simple, but subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that helps us out a whole bunch. And if you want to do the cherry on top, post it online, share it with a friend. We uh, are really grateful for that. Uh, friend of the show, Mandy Smith. Can we call her friend of the show yet? She's been on we can. at least twice, right? I think she's coming on tomorrow, or I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's coming on tomorrow. She, I mean, she's got a new book coming out, which I cannot wait. Yeah, friend of the show. I cannot wait friend to talk to her about. Show. It is she is one of those voices that I just think is is so needed. I want to share an article, actually, that she wrote a year ago almost. This was uh, in December 2019 for Missio Alliance. Again, a resource and website that we have referenced a fair amount. And the headline simply reads, The Difference Between Christian Institutions and the Kingdom. It's not all that long, Brian. Do you want to just read it for us and then we'll react? Yeah, let's do it. She writes, there's a huge labyrinth near my house. Well, there used to be. For years, a Catholic community farmed the land and hosted retreats. And for years, they moved a labyrinth uh, in the grass for visitors to walk and ponder. But they're closing their operations and letting the grass grow. What once was a place of spiritual reflection now looks no different than the fields that surround it. I first heard this sad news when a friend whose life was once radically changed halfway around the labyrinth sent me a photo of this now nondescript field. He'd gone back to visit the labyrinth whenever in town to remember the moment of transformation several years ago, but now this place of significance was gone. After pro uh, processing the sadness of the news, I found myself saying to him, but your life continues to show the fruit of that moment in that labyrinth, and every person who ever walked that labyrinth continues to carry insights, the choices that took place. The physical place was an outer marker of transformative work happening in hearts and lives. A few months later, I find myself walking a different field of grass in the same city, a grassy campus of a large local Christian institution. I walk this grass often, but now it draws my attention because instead of the familiar well-kept lawn, the grass now grows knee high. I know enough about the institution to know why. They're not able to pay the mowing bills. I know that what structures are crumbling, what resources are dwindling. As the grass, grass whips my legs, I imagine what will become of this place. Will the staff lose their job? Will the facility be sold? Will these buildings be torn down? Will this also become one more field of grass? As I walk, I'm at a loss uh, to know how to pray. All I can think to say is, whether this organization remains or comes to an end, may every resource, every person here be released to fully be used for your kingdom. Consider for a moment every Christian institution that's been meaningful to you. Consider your home church. It's a building. It's building, tradition, staff, and ministry structures. 
Consider the church camp you attended and the Christian retreat center you visited. Remember the seminaries and denominations and curriculum. Think of the Christian publishers, bookstores, radio stations, websites, podcasts. Thank God for each one of those. Now, what if they all cease to exist? Mm. Beyond the sadness of their loss, what could it do to the uh, to imagine how the kingdom uh, would continue? In my life alone, I've had to grieve the death of three churches, three publishing houses, two periodicals, two local Christian retreat centers, two Bible colleges. And alongside all those deaths, I've grieved with many friends uh, as they've lost their Christian careers, the partnerships and resources and energy and momentum. It's painful time to be a Christian leader watching these familiar institutions crumble, saying goodbye to organizations and buildings. And at the same time, it's a healthy moment to remember the nature of this kingdom we've been promised, the way it can function underground and with limited resources, the way it actually flourishes under duress and what it seems like a desert. It's a moment to remember that seemingly insignificant nature of yeast in the Mm -hmm. dough. This work of imagination is important for those moments. It will help us to remember how to invest our energies in the kingdom, even when organizations we've served crumble at our feet or we watch the grass uh, growing in the ruins. As painful as it is, we may have an opportunity to confront the possibility that when platforms fall, our small voices are the voice of the kingdom. It will become a moment to see uh, that when buildings disintegrate, we carry the kingdom in our ordinary bodies. And there's another season this work of imagination is important. We will have the role of leading institutions in the name of the kingdom. When we forget that our institutions are not the kingdom, we fight to save these organizations at all costs. When we think our job is to save the thing, no matter what, leaders resort to acts of violence. We do real harm to humans Uh To shrink or die is the same for the kingdom to die. This kind of desperation is what causes Christian leaders to use kingdom language as they bulldoze and manipulate people. Do we think the kingdom is so fragile that it can't survive shifts in human organizations? Have we lost our imagination for how this kingdom has outlasted human empires over and over again? Uh, Let me cut to the end just so we have time to talk about it. It says, When we can no longer rely on buildings and organizations, we'll have to remember that it's our small bodies that carry the spirit, our small feet that take us to places that need the good news, our small voices that speak it. Mary's smallness didn't keep her from saying yes, from receiving and birthing that kingdom. And our smallness doesn't have to keep us from carrying on her work. May that earlier prayer that helps me grieve the loss of my local organizations remain with us even as we lead our organizations. May my physical body be an outer marker of transformative work taking place in invisible places. May every resource in me be released to be fully used for your kingdom. That's a beautiful oh, word. So good. I, I'm i sure it's clear why we're always so excited to have her on the show. I just think the fact that this was written a year ago, that's how you know, in my mind, yeah, it's like prophetic. good prophetic writing. Because yeah. sometimes, you know, we've this has happened a few times on the show where even after we've read it, we're like stunned. They're like, this was five years ago. How did this, how did they know? And I think her perspective, you know, when we've seen a lot of institutional failure, we even mentioned some at the very beginning of the show, when we see a totally different posture towards physical spaces, uh, this call and this reminder, I, I think is just so important. What, what kind of stands out to you as, as you read it? I think that I am a challenge by it because I put hope in the institutions uh, beyond thankfulness, right? My church yeah. or, uh, you know, the college I went to right. or whatever. And I'm super thankful for them all. Uh, but her reminder, even if they went away, 
God doesn't go away. His kingdom is still moving. And, and we need to think in those terms. I take that as a, as a challenge mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm thankful for her words. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely agree. I would encourage you to save it, read it for yourself. It's up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. How does this speak to you in the midst of a pandemic and our current election space and all of that? That's over the Facebook page, the common good radio show. It has been a joy and a privilege to be with you all today. And we will be back again tomorrow from 4 till 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.